It all happened on a day, that joyful Christmas day planned in eternity by God the Father and declared by angels as this day which Christ the Savior would be born. On this day, at the perfect fullness of time in the prophesied city of Bethlehem, a promised Savior was born to a perishing world. Jesus' birth shook an unassuming, silent night into a spectacular night as history was split between Christmas promised and Christmas fulfilled. So it was that in the manger lay the infant Jesus Christ, God's great confirmation of all his promises revealed in the glory of Christmas. Last week we talked about Christmas promised. How the living God who is omnitemporal, existing outside of time, not bound by time's constraints. In fact, time itself exists because it was his idea. Outside of time, he, for his own pleasure, chose to create, knowing from outside of time that his creation would fall, would rebel against him. And so outside of time, he planned the redemption of a people for himself. He announced that plan, we talked about it last week, in a curse on a serpent in the Garden of Eden. And brought the first steps of the execution of that redemptive plan about with the coming of the baby of Bethlehem who was so much more than any casual onlooker would have seen. Take your Bible and turn to Luke chapter two and let's talk about Christmas fulfilled. If you have your outline there and remember we make those available digitally and they're also printed copies available. I hope if you want one, you picked one up on the way in. Roman numeral one, the son, and I'm not gonna read all 40 verses in advance, we're gonna read them as we go. The son, verses one through seven, Luke two. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And this was the first registration when Quirinius was the governor of Syria and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Some, some truth similar to the things we talked about last week, in some ways even perhaps recapping or retouching some of those truths. So the things I wanna, I wanna highlight under this Roman numeral one, letter A, I want us to see that it was the right period. The right period the right moment in time. The Apostle Paul, writing some decades after this, in, his, in the first and earliest of the books of your New Testament that were written by Paul, they're not arranged chronologically in your New Testament, but if they were, Galatians would, would be the first. And uh, 
Paul writing to those sweet churches there in that province of Galatia. And Galatians 4.4 describes this moment as the fullness of time. It is in the fullness of time that Jesus came. Precisely a, a, a very finely tuned moment. Now there are, there are tons of characteristics of this moment when viewed from a historical perspective, but there are three that truly stand out. And I only share these with you not to, not to inflict upon you a history lesson, but for you to furly, further marvel at the, uh, at the intentionality of God. The, the season where Jesus came had the following three overlapping characteristics that only overlapped for the briefest of moments in history. The first was the Pax Romana, or Roman peace. Just a couple of centuries prior to Jesus, the Greek Empire had given way before the Roman Empire. The Greek Empire treated the Jews horrifically. Antiochus Epiphanes, the Greek uh, ruler, had desecrated and ruined the temple of Jerusalem. In fact, uh, Hanukkah is a celebration. The, the Festival of Lights is a celebration of the restoration of that temple. The full architectural restoration of that temple would not take place until the reign of Herod the Great, which was going on at the time Jesus was born. But as the Roman Empire uh, displaced the Greeks, and the Roman Empire then ruled in that part of the world around the Mediterranean Sea, there was established a, a period of stability. Free travel across vast amounts of territory, which enabled the spread of the gospel in the first and second centuries without much geographical restriction because of the, the, the peace imposed by the Roman Empire. So the Roman peace. Second, a lingering after echo of the Greek domination of that region was the, the common use of the Greek language. The Greek language was spoken on the street, the language in which our New Testament came to us from the heart of the Holy Spirit through the human authors. The Greek language was the language used by, by Plato, Socrates, Aristotle. It is the best language ever given to humans by the living God for the expression of finely tuned philosophical ideas. And it was that Greek language that in which God the Holy Spirit gave us our New Testament. Multiple nuanced verb tenses, huge detailed vocabulary as every seminary student who ever had to go through a couple of years of Greek could tell you. But incredible precision to express agape, not mere love. Agape as distinct from friendship, as distinct from romance, as distinct from several other types of love. For example, that love, which we, we know to be the unconditional self-sacrificial commitment to the well-being of another, that finely tuned an idea. The Roman peace, the miracle of the Greek language. And then finally, Messiah, to fulfill the prophecies about him, had to function in Jewish culture. I've already said that the, the temple in Jerusalem was not restored until just before the birth of Christ under the, the, the construct, construction prowess of Herod the Great. Now, we know him from the Christmas story as the, the one who had all the toddlers killed and told in the Gospel of Matthew. He was not a nice guy, but he was an incredible builder. 
And, and just in time for Jesus to minister and fulfill prophecy in the temple, he reconstructs it. And just a few decades after the death of Christ, in the year 70 AD, that same temple is shaved off to the ground level by the, by the Romans who finally, by that time, have enough of seeking to rule the unruly Jews. And they wipe Jerusalem off the map and there is no organized Jewish culture in that part of the world again until the middle of the 20th century. So that very tiny space of time of a dominant Roman peace, a dominant Greek language, and a visible Jewish culture shot straight into the bullseye of that, he comes at the right period. Second, he came to the right place. He came to the right place. Micah 5.2 speaks of the birth of one who has always existed. The birth of a human being whose going forth is from ages past. Now, you did not exist before you were conceived. Human beings do not pre-exist their conception. You have no former lives. Some of you say, that's not surprising. I have no present life. That's a subject for a different day. <laughs> I'm teasing. You did not pre-exist your conception and birth. You just didn't. Jesus did. The only human being that ever existed before his conception and birth was the God-man, Jesus Christ. And that one, the only human being about which that could ever be said, is, born, is to be born in Bethlehem, according to Micah chapter 5, verse 2. And here we find the baby born in Bethlehem, the right place. Let her see to the right parents, the right parents. So much of this we touched on last week, but it's so worth remembering. In order for Jesus to legally fulfill the, con the genealogical connections that he had to have, in order, for, in order for that connection to matter legally to the Jewish mind, to the, the, those who would first embrace him as Messiah, the connections have to come through his father. They can be through an adopted father, that's fine. So those connections have to come through his adopted father, Joseph. But in order that they be also literally true, that he be literally, biologically connected as, as prophecy says he would be, those connections also have to come through his mother, Mary. Thus the genealogy of, of, of Joseph in Matthew and the genealogy of Mary in Luke so that both parents descend from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, David, Zerubbabel, the last place where the genealogies intersect. She has to be a virgin. And here we are. Precisely the right period. Precisely the right place. Precisely the right parents. And God keeps a promise made before the foundation of the world, he comes. I hope I made the point last week, but less I made it less clearly than I would want to. 
The, the details surrounding Jesus and his birth sort of give us a look behind the curtain at the omni-intentional <laughs> operations of the living God who brings things to pass with spectacular precision for his glory and our good. Do not think the circumstances of your life reflect any less intentionality, any less love. Maybe we've not seen behind the curtain as much to know all he's going to do in your life. But I'll tell you what he's not gonna do in your life. He's not gonna treat you haphazardly. He's not gonna be caught off guard by your circumstances. And he's not going to fail to engineer your narrative for his glory and your good as he sees it. Roman numeral two, the shepherds. If you look, if you look for sort of an everyman character in, the, in the, the true story of the coming of Jesus, if you look for a, a place in the narrative that kind of connects to just folks, I think you find it in the shepherds. Letter A, they were just doing their thing. I've called it on your outline, their routine. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. Just a, a night like any other. Just routine, a top routine. And yet, the living God is going to pierce that routine with the best news ever. You know what I bet? Hope, believe, love. He pierces routine. If you know him this morning, if you are a follower of Christ by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone, by his word alone, he pierced your routine. If he had left you alone in your routine, Jesus described that in the Sermon on the Mount as a broad highway, easy to find, effortless to travel, that leads to eternal destruction. That's what your routine does if he leaves you alone. But if you know him this morning, you know him because he pierced your routine. He made his love plain to you. He made his, he made his grace impactful on you. And you received that gift of eternal life by faith because he pierced your routine. Amen indeed. And I'm so glad he does that. I wonder if you're here today and in the broad scope of your life, you would say, well, of course I'm at church. It's the Sunday before Christmas. It's just kind of routine. I pray that he will wreak havoc on your routine until you come to faith in Christ. I don't mean anything mean for you. If he busts up your routine for a fare you well and makes you miserable until you cry out for salvation, I'll buy the coffee 10,000 years from now and you can tell me the story of how he saved you. And don't tell me there's no coffee in heaven. <laughs> ah, but their revelation. God has something he wants them to know. 
And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto us is born this day, or unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and laying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. The Lord through his angelic spokespeople spoke and revealed his truth to these shepherds, which elicited, letter C on your outline, a response. A response. Verses 15 and 16. And when the angels went away from them into heaven, the angels said to one another. Now, I'm going to put a pause there for a minute. There's something that's not recorded in God's word, and in honesty, it might not have happened. But I think what these shepherds first said to one another was, did you see that? I don't know what I ate too late at night that's causing me to hallucinate. Well, if you're hallucinating, I'm hallucinating too. And me, and me. So we all saw it? Yep. And we all heard it. Yep. Call that verse 15a. <laughs> and accept it or reject it as you will. I'd recommend rejecting it. It's just, I'm just fixing the old boys out on the hillside. Remember, they're, they're not behaving like they're in your Christmas card, you know. <gasps> but once they figured out this was for real, they said, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. You bet they did. And then letter D. For me, letter D is the heart of what I would, would desire for you to carry out of this Sunday before Christmas message on Luke 2. Because you see, the Christmas narrative the marvelous story and reality of the Savior who has come invokes not only response, but responsibility. There are some responsibilities that emerge from the text. Number one, responsibility to see. Verse 17, and when they saw it, and when they saw it, now, we know that they had working optical hardware. Unlike some that Jesus will encounter in his ministry later who are blind and who are healed by him, there's no indication that these guys couldn't see. But had they just been wandering about in Bethlehem that night, they would not have seen anything terribly special. Contrary 
to centuries of Christian art, the baby in the manger was not glowing. Mary and Joseph did not have special effects around their heads. When they came to this barn, whatever structural form, and it may have been a freestanding barn, it may have been a cave. When they got there, they saw a messy newborn baby. And I'm not picking on Jesus, I just, newborns are messy. An exhausted new mother and a completely overwhelmed but grateful stepdad. Jesus is going to grow and during his earthly ministry he's going to say on several occasions they have eyes but they do not see. Ears but they do not hear. But see, because these shepherds had heard from God, they could see and see what they were seeing. God, in his word to them, told them what to look for, told them what to consider. And so that which appeared on the surface unremarkable was understood by them to be spectacularly remarkable. There's a takeaway for you and me there. God has given us more, God has said more to us by far than the angels said to those shepherds that night. We, I mean, we have, we have all those words and tens of thousands more. We have more information than those shepherds got through which we should be seeing what God is up to. In fact, you will never accurately see what God is up to until you see it through the lens of what God has said. They saw. Roman 2, I mean number 2, responsibility to make known, to make known. When they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning the child. As, as soon as they saw it, they wanted to tell it. Now I would point out for the record, they had not had a 13-week evangelism course. I would point out, for the record, they had not memorized big chunks of the New Testament since, well, it hadn't been written yet. <clears throat> but they knew, because God had shown them and told them, they knew what God was up to. They had grasped it for themselves, and they couldn't wait to tell somebody else. With the meager little understanding that they had, they couldn't wait to tell somebody else. With the incredible completeness of what we have, oh, may we be a people who can't wait to tell somebody else. To see, to make known, to treasure and ponder. 
All who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them, but Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. To treasure and ponder that quiet contemplation to grasp more deeply what God has done. You know what? Your external energetic service to your king, Jesus, will be powered by your internal devotion, your quiet time in prayer and with his word. We speak to him in prayer. He speaks back to us in his word. Do you have time in your overwrought schedule to treasure and ponder? You'll never live powerfully until you live devotionally. You'll never worship Jesus publicly beyond your love for him privately. Treasure and ponder. And then finally, to glorify and praise him for his works and for his word. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And there's that same idea again. They, they praised and glorified God for what they had experienced as it had been told them. Now there's a critical truth embedded in there that I don't want you to miss. If you and I are going to follow Jesus and, and think biblically, trusting in what he has said to us, we're going to have to accept as one of the first principles of how we live something that is extraordinarily non-intuitive. Here's what your intuition takes us. Intuition wants us to say things like, well, I know what the Bible says, but let me tell you what I've learned. Let me tell you what my experience has taught me. Let me tell you what I've learned through my life. I know what the Bible says, but let me tell you what's true because it's what I've experienced. That's how we're wired. That is exactly wrong. That is 180 degrees upside down. Rather, we should say, I think I know what I saw, but here's what the Bible says, and the Bible is right and authoritative. So what I think I saw, I must be confused. Here's what I've, I've lived, but this is what God has said, so that's how I evaluate my experience. I do, not bring my, I do not bring the word of God to my life asking to figure it out. I bring my life to the word of God that I would understand what God is up to and how I can accurately. See, I've got, I've got a desperate liar inside me. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, my own heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Deceitful above all things. You know, the most dangerous liar in my life is Russell. And if I don't cling to the word of God to hold that rascal in check, he'll lie to me and lie to me and lie to me. And so will you to you. They, they came telling about everything they had seen and heard as it had been told to them. God's word. 
Oh, may we glorify and praise the Lord for his works as seen through the lens of his word. Finally, the salvation. Verses 21 through 40. I'm not going to read all of these verses. I'm going to be kind to our time schedule. But four things you must see. First, Jesus fulfilled the law. We would read in these verses that Jesus was circumcised on the eighth day as the law required, and then at 40 days, he was taken to the temple for the required sacrifices of a firstborn son. And mom and daddy took the baby Jesus to fulfill all that was required in the law, and Jesus never let up on that through all of his life. He lived in complete compliance with God's law, having never sinned. Second, he fulfilled the promises. Last week I introduced you to Simeon. We see him again here. We we see him in verses 25 through 35. He's the last person to whom a specific promise of the coming Messiah was made. A promise was made to Simeon that he would not die until he saw Jesus with his own eyes. And when he saw Jesus in the temple, he said, Lord, verse 29, you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Jesus fulfilled every promise. Let us see Jesus fulfilled the hopes. There was a lady named Anna, a prophetess. Bible says that she was um, an older woman. She had married young and lived with her husband for seven years before she became a widow. And, And now, years later, at the age of 84, she comes to the temple every day to fast and pray and look for the coming Savior. Her hopes were fulfilled when she met Jesus. And finally, Jesus fulfilled the expectations. Last couple of verses of our passage, verse 39 through 40. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their hometown of Nazareth. And the child grew, as little boys will do, and became strong, as little boys will do, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Existing from eternity past, he grew up into human adulthood, fully God, fully man. Do not compromise the deity of Christ to accommodate humanity. Do not compromise the humanity of Christ to accommodate deity. He is not a 50-50 mix of human and God. He is 100% both. And if that's bigger than your little head can contain, what about that is surprising. My little head too, he's God, you're not. Fully God, fully man. And one day on a cross, according to 2 Corinthians verse 5, 21, the one, him, he, who did not know sin at all, became sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God in him. See the baby in the manger, but truly see him. Make him known. Ponder and treasure him. Glorify and praise him for what he has done what he has said. Merry Christmas.